0: Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500.
1: Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely
2: incredible. Danny Sullivan
1: spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5 The The Fan.
3: Another fabulous evening that we have in Indianapolis, Indiana. Hopefully it is as beautiful where you are. If you are listening to this either live on 93.5, 107.5, the Fan WFNI in Indianapolis, or if you are listening to us on an app, or if you are listening to us on a podcast later, we certainly appreciate it. My name is Jake Query. Good evening to you. Mike Thompson, Joins me on the program as well. Sam Rumsa is our producer extraordinaire. This is Beyond the Bricks, taking a look at the names, the personalities, the stories. And for tonight's episode, some of the myths of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Mike, I'm not certain if the show is still on the air. I believe it is, but there's a very popular show. I've caught it from time to time, Mythbusters. Uh, One of the guys... I think looks like maybe he would have been like a bicyclist or an artist. I don't know which of the two of us that would be. But tonight, you decided that you wanted to do a couple of myth busts, right?
2: Yeah, and actually, this is um, some of the audio we grabbed was the first show that Donald and I ever did together. We busted some myths together. And so I thought this might be fun to uh, bring that back a little bit in case people didn't hear that uh, the first show Donald and I ever did together, we busted some myths
3: busted some myths okay um we have a lot to talk about over the course of the program with that mike first up let's take a look back real quick just at last night's show i thought it was a fun one uh man you pulled some fantastic sound that's a radio term some great audio clips from victory lane thank you for the suggestions for that uh, for those that had sent me a message saying that that is something that they would have enjoyed. And that was a good suggestion, Mike. I thought last night was really fun and often pretty interesting to listen to.
2: Oh, yeah. It was a great suggestion. Um, I think it was Alex who did that. He's a uh, he he's one of our longtime listeners, and uh, he has a lot of suggestions for us. And I thought that was a really good suggestion. And I really, again, I thought what was interesting about the show last night was you really hear the evolution of the Victory Lane interview. And one of the things I didn't get a chance to point out last night when we were doing the show is, if you remember listening to the early years, the 50s, there was a lot of emphasis put on the, uh, the, the the people, the movie stars, who were there to kiss the winner. You know, and they did that for a number of different years. They brought in a Hollywood star to kiss the winner, and there was a lot of emphasis on, you heard Barbara Stanwyck and Jane Greer and Aaron O'Brien was there one year and Dinah Shore. and you know, Shirley McLean, and they they brought in someone who was very well-known to kiss the winner, and that was a – obviously, you could tell that was a big part of the Victory Lane uh, ceremony and was a big part of the coverage in Victory Lane. Sid made a big point to point that out, as Charlie Brockman did and and another number of others.
3: And one of the things that – before we get to uh, tonight's program, Mike, one of the things that I think you can really see or hear, to be more specific – with those victory lane interviews and the dignitaries of which you speak, the celebrities, Dinah Shore being a, a really good example, um, it is obvious. And I don't know necessarily that perhaps publicly he had stated this, but I think privately to friends and whatnot, he had. And we might have talked about it before, Mike. But Sid Collins was obviously a very talented and very well known within Indianapolis broadcaster who was multifaceted in terms of his skill and his reach he i believe you know he was always dressed very dapper i think he did advertisements for perhaps william h block the local department store um, maybe Ellis airs one of those two but he was in that capacity you know really seen i think is is kind of the face within indianapolis of somewhat the social scene i don't want to outspeak that Per se, but I think that Sid Collins saw himself while he had a great reverence and passion for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and clearly in his decision, ability to bring in Donald and promote Donald as the eventual track historian, he had a great reverence for the history of the event. But I also think that Sid Collins saw himself as somebody who could perhaps go beyond just a radio personality or a broadcast personality within racing as more of like an entertainment-type host of different programs. So I think that he himself really fancied when Hollywood dignitaries would be at the Speedway.
2: Oh, I think there's no question about 100% what you just said is accurate because he had a show called The PM Party on WIBC, and one of the things on that PM Party show was – if someone was coming to town if mel torme was coming to town to play a concert or if if jane mansfield was coming to town for something they would drop by the pm party and sid would interview them and and sid also in addition i mean one of the things we know about sid's the way sid called the race compared to the way paul page and you know mark james and you guys call the race differently is sid was more of a master of ceremonies you know the, the he would report they would report things after they occurred and Sid was almost like you know the host of the world's biggest barbecue that happened to be there was a race going on at the same time right and he had a number of guests in the booth and he enjoyed having all those different guests to interview and things like that and so I think you're 100% right I mean I think Sid enjoyed uh, he was friends with Ed Sullivan um, Jack Benny, you know, and I think he liked those, those type of people. And I think he fancied himself a little bit like a, an, an Ed Sullivan type of person, you know, kind of a variety type host, you know, in that kind of role. I think you're hundred percent right.
3: Let's begin with tonight, Mike. Um, and I don't mean this to be somber by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it is also important. A lot of heroes have raced at the Indianapolis motor speedway and a lot of heroes, drivers that were heroes not just in the car but away from it as well veterans a lot of military veterans have raced at the indianapolis motor speedway and a lot of drivers whose career came to an end either due to injury or various reasons in the pursuit of the win or in simply to qualify for the indianapolis 500 mile race and unfortunately that includes one individual who was fatally injured 49 years ago today at IMS.
2: Yeah, today we're remembering, um, a couple drivers, one who lost his life at IMS, Art Pollard, and also Adam Petty, um, Art Pollard, a lot of people, people may not remember Art Pollard, but Art Pollard did a lot for not only for racing, but he did a lot for Indianapolis. Um, you know, he was a great race car driver, first of all, um, but second of all he he raised a lot of money for Riley Hospital and tirelessly raised money for for Riley I mean had a had an annual picnic that he he kind of cajoled some of the other drivers to come out to every year and help him raise some money for kids and and he he did that back back um, in the Pacific Northwest too for for charities there and and our Pollard was a great guy and one of the reasons I wanted to re- you know, remember our Pollard also tonight is. uh it, it makes me think of your your friend and and my friend, uh the late Robin Miller, because the first time I ever knew about Robin Miller was because of the 1973 Carl Hungness yearbook. Robin Miller wrote a, a a piece about his friend Art Pollard, who had passed away, and that was the first time I knew who Robin Miller really was. Was because of you know, as a little kid, I read read about this. Um, you know, this guy robin miller who had written a piece about our uh, pollard so um i think it's important to you know take time to remember our pollard and one of the pieces of audio i was able to uh, dig up today is we all remember the the great lou palmer and the great lou palmer's uh you know qualifying coverage his daily qualifying coverage and and his daily trackside reports and I happen to have a clip of of the day that Art passed away narrated by Lou Palmer.
3: So this is May twelfth, nineteen 1973. Art Pollard was attempting to qualify for his 6th Indianapolis 500. He was a rookie in 1967. In that race, he started 13th and finished the race 8th. He ran again in 68, 69, 70, and 71. Then in 1972, he withdrew due to injury. And in 1973, he had the practice crash. That we just discussed, and as Mike had mentioned, Lou Palmer shared the news and spoke of it on, I assume, WIBC. This this would be WIBC versus the IMS Radio Network, correct, Mike? This is WIBC. That is correct. Okay, here is Lou Palmer in 1973.
1: There is the other ingredient of the day that saw new records set in terms of qualifying, but also saw death at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. For those who may not have been aware earlier, It occurred in practice this morning, a practice period before the qualifications began at 11 o'clock, actually slightly delayed from that point, between 9 and 10.30, the practice time was allowed, and in the middle of that practice period, a car moved into the number one turn and then suddenly darted to the outer retaining wall, bounced, flipped in the air, there was fire rushed to the hospital. Art Pollard was pronounced dead this morning at 10.40 a fine competitor, a fine man. Art Pollard, that is the result of injuries suffered in practice this morning at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where the other news focused on, well, really, if we are talking about a 200-mile-an-hour lap, we are eight-tenths of a second off. In fact, how much time that is. Tom Lucas is standing by, and I'm not sure you can click eight-tenths of a second off on the watches, Tom, but I'd like to see you try, just to give an indication of the difference between that run and what would have been a 200 mile an hour run so you know that we came very close to it and it was a superb job by johnny rutherford here's the click eight tenths of a second and that's all the difference between a 199.071 mile an hour lap that johnny rutherford turned and what has become a magic 200 mile an hour mark
3: Turns out the pole speed that year was Johnny Rutherford at one ninety-eight point four one three miles an hour. Of course, Gordon Johncock won that nineteen seventy-three race. That is Lou Palmer on WIBC Radio discussing Art Pollard's passing on May twelfth of nineteen seventy three. Mike, the reality is that nineteen seventy three race, while that was the first race. Uh, in which I was alive. I don't remember it. Obviously, I was an infant, but uh, that is one of the very few years that many people who did attend the festivities and or the race itself in 1973, probably if there was one for them to not remember, it would be that one.
2: Yeah, 73 is the one everybody wants to forget. In fact, uh, Sid is one of those people a little bit. If you listen to the 73 broadcast all the way through, at one point uh, after the the terrible Swede savage accident and the uh, the terrible tragedy that that took the life of Armando Taran, the the crew member for Graham McCray in the pit the pit lane Sid is basically at one point he's done you can tell he's you know he talks about what a disastrous month it is and uh you know he's he's over it you can tell and so uh, yeah 73 is the one to forget for sure or one of the ones to forget certainly
3: about a year ago a little over a year ago I had um the pleasure of meeting Gordon Johncock who got his first of two wins in 1973 and one of the things that I asked him and you could tell that he has been asked it a lot explained it a lot. Uh, but he didn't hesitate to agree to the theory or the philosophy was the fact that it probably was the right thing or, you know, the the racing gods a little bit in 1982, that he was able to win a race and win a race that he could take pride in. And not that you wouldn't in 1973, but you get what I'm saying, Mike, and the fact that he had one that it would have been difficult if 73 is your only win just because there was... You know, so many aspects that went into it, including, of course, rain and fatality and just, you know, there was so much into 1973 that 82 was a good one for Gordon Johncock to get. Again, my name is Jay Corey, Mike Thompson here as well. Let's get to tonight's subject matter, and that is we're going to be MythBusters, including it doesn't take long, Mike, and that's the beauty and the brilliance and the magic of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. When you look at it historically, you don't have to go very far into the record books from starting at the beginning to find a race that, yes, indeed, back in 1911, everybody was on Twitter talking about how Ray Haroon, did he or did he not win it? Obviously, Twitter wasn't around back then. Yes, I'm well aware. But my point being, Mike, the very first race set the tone, set the precedent for the fact that it always gives us something to talk about.
2: That's right. And the uh, the first myth right out of the gate was, uh, you know, and, and if you ever want to get uh, you ever want to get Donald going, you say uh, ask him if Ray Haroon won the Indianapolis five hundred in nineteen eleven or not, because uh, you know that's one of the myths. When he and I started talking about the show and laid it out, I said, you know, I said, what myth? You know, do you want to to bust? And that was one of the first things he brought up was was that you know he said, hey, there's this controversy that's brewing, and he said there is no controversy at all. He's like Bray Haroon won the race, you know. So, you're right. I mean, um, it's it's one of the ones, and it's right out of the gate. And there's a couple reasons for that. We'll discuss as we listen to what Donald has to say about it. But there's a there's a couple reasons for for why it is a
3: controversy. Okay, so allegedly, we will get to first Donald Davidson talking about that Haroon myth before we kind of further examine, if you will, including um, hearing about everything that took place in it. So I would assume the first thing that we want to hear. Mike would be Donald on the myth itself, correct? Uh, yes, that'd be correct. okay, here is Donald on the Ray Haroon myth of nineteen eleven The theory is that that Ralph Mulford was running quite a bit faster than
0: Ray Haroon, and that's true, and that uh, there was a a lap that got missed probably when an accident took place about a third of the way through, and that's entirely possible too, but it i, I it, uh, As far as the outcome of the race was concerned, uh, the important facts that just don't seem to come out is the tire change issue. And we can maybe... Uh, dispel another myth at the same time, or attempt to dispel another myth, and that is that Ray Haroon went to the Firestone engineers the night before the race and said, what speed do I have to run to get the best tire wear? Well, that's baloney, because I don't even know if if Firestone, you know, had a race team yet. Uh, Firestone was a brand new company and they probably had reps, but they didn't have, like, the Firestone Racing Division like they would have later on. And the other thing, too, was that Ray Haroon had already won a 200-mile race at the Speedway in 1910. And it's reported uh, he, he's he's um, quoted in Al Blemker's book 500 Miles to Go, and... Uh, I had an opportunity to spend some time with Ray Haroon myself, and he told me that, he said, we actually figured out... what the best speed would be to run. And he said we, could, we decided that 75 miles an hour would win the, would win the race because he said we had, we'd uh, won the 200-mile race before. We'd done a lot of practice in 10 and 11. And uh, he said that the thing was that if you blew a tire, had a tire failure, it would take a long time. A lot of
3: time would be lost in, in coming in and making the change. Okay, so with that, we're kind of setting the stage here, right, Mike? And there's an aspect that takes place in the race that Donald kind of mentioned there that we need to examine further, correct? That's correct. Uh, we're talking about Ralph Mulford and the,
2: the fact that while Ralph Mulford might have been running faster at the time, he also had a number of problems uh, tire-related and pit stop-related that would change the outcome.
0: The newspaper reports the next day and the magazine reports in in the days that follow give you the information that uh, Malfred, let's see, Malfred changed 14 tires, but it doesn't say how many times he stopped. And I think Haroon stopped three times. I'm a little hazy on this now. And he changed four tires, including the right rear, three times. They don't specify which the other tire was, but one of the tires, if the the information is correct, one of the tires got changed, and two of the others went through the whole race. But the right rear, which you you would assume would get the most uh, punishment, that got changed three times. But there were no failures. That's that's important to know. The other thing is that Malfred um, changed the 14 tires, we don't know how many stops, at least two. He had a failure this is not on wikipedia you know this is not in somebody's memoirs decades later this is the reports at the time that he uh, that at least one time he blew a tire going into turn 3 uh, i'm sorry in, into turn 1 and so um, the uh, he had to do an entire virtually entire lap on bricks on the rim and then the other thing too is that on that that final stop both the newspaper and the magazine report that when he came in on the rim he damaged the rim and it was necessary to hammer out the rim while uh, before they could even make the tire change so all of this time he's sitting still the clock's ticking and haroon's still out there doing 75 miles an hour so i'm sure that mulford probably passed haroon several times but he lost it all with the tire problem the extra stops plus losing
3: time doing as i've described so the question with everything taking place as you hear from donald davidson the track historian emeritus of the indianapolis motor speedway here you have the very first 500 mile race at indianapolis the international sweepstakes if you will and of course at that time it wasn't as though everybody thought to themselves you know what I want to win this race because in 100-plus years from now, 111 years from now, two guys are going to be talking about it on the radio in Indianapolis, Indiana. It wasn't about that, but it was about competition. Ralph Mulford finished second, of course, officially speaking, in that race. So the question is, what was his mindset in terms of the news then versus later? I don't think there's
0: any doubt that, uh, you know, that that Haroon won the race. And then the other thing, too, about Malford in later years saying, I think they missed a lap and I think he really won it. Well, um, there is a story out of Detroit, Dateline, I think it's June the 5th of 1911, to say that Malford has now driven – the, uh, the the Lozier that finished second, back up to Detroit on the public roads, and that he's perfectly happy with the outcome and, and thinks that the the combination of Mr. Haroon and the Marmon, uh, that nobody could have beaten them on that day. So he's basically saying, you know, he won the race. And then I think as the years went by, he may have suggested gently, because he was a very gentle man he was a sunday school teacher uh, he he didn't you know go you know pounding into the the uh, the chief steward's office and, and pounding on the desk as some people have suggested that he might he never and there was no protest at the time there was never a protest so i think all of this other stuff is just uh, is just baloney that's got stirred up later There's no doubt in my mind in fact my theory, i think they, they show the margin of victory at a minute and 27. My theory is that, uh, that if, if it were possible to go back and, and rerun the race and electronically score it, it may end up that Haroon has an even more convincing uh, margin of victory.
2: And one thing that you mentioned is the newspaper accounts of that time because you have uh, there have been a lot of accounts saying oh he always maintained that he won the race which is completely false as you just mentioned the Boston evening transcript June 3rd 1911 he gives full credit to Ray Haroon and the Marmon that captured first place there you go the New York (laughs) Times uh, from June 3rd 1911 Ralph Mulford said he drove 500 miles without relief but expressed outcome and satisfaction of the outcome of the race giving full credit to Ray Haroon and Cyrus Patchkey for their great victory
3: because that's somebody that sounds like they got ripped off? I don't think so. Absolutely. <laughs> Here's the funny thing about that, Mike, and that's fantastic that you found the old newspapers first and foremost. Um, in 1912, of course, Joe Dawson won the Indianapolis 500 in what was at the time, and obviously uh, a record that held for nearly 100 years, the fewest laps led by the winning driver. That was eclipsed in 2011 by Dan Weldon. In terms of that particular race, Weldon led only off of turn number four. But it wouldn't take long for another myth at Indianapolis to be born. And we'll get to that because it has an international flair for the first time. That and more when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. Racing engines run hot.
1: STP oil treatment fights the effects of heat in racing cars. Your car runs hot, too. In everyday driving, heat weakens your oil's vital protective properties. That's motor oil breakdown. STP fights motor oil breakdown. STP strengthens your oil, putting extra lubricants and anti-wear agents to work just where they're needed. Whenever you change or add oil, get STP oil treatment and fight motor oil breakdown.
3: Timely ad in nineteen eighty two for STP because it was the STP oil treatment machine that took Gordon Johncock to his second Indianapolis five hundred wing. Good evening to you, beyond the bricks, Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Sam Rumsa. Mike, an interesting question that I asked Donald years ago. That I said, it's always a it's always very flattering when you ask Donald a question and he he references. You know that's a that's a really good question, which is always because he's been asked about everything, right? And. One of them that I asked him that I remember him perking up was I said, when did Ray Haroon really become the first 500 winner? I mean, I know he won it in 1911. But when suddenly were people starting to pat on the back Ray Haroon and he was recognized not as the Marmon Wasp, but as Ray Haroon Indy 500 inaugural winner? And I think probably what we see here is that that disparity between when he took the checkered flag And when he finally started to get recognized for it probably perpetuated a little bit this myth that we talked about previously
2: yeah i I agree with that because i think i think what happened is um in 1951 when he came to the borg warner party you know he started getting a lot some accolades but then for 61 when it was the 50th anniversary ray haroon was everywhere and he signed a lot more autographs that year, and and it was started to become hey this they started feeding him a little bit more, you know, and 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 he became became uh, you know he laid the golden brick and all these different things that he did, and that's when all of a sudden uh, Ralph Mulford, you know, in an interview was like, well, I think maybe I won, you know, 50 years later, he's he's his stories changed a little bit, and again, not out of maliciousness, as Donald said, he just. You know that that was just kind of because as donald always points out in 1911 it wasn't the indianapolis 500 it wasn't what we know it today they didn't know if it was going to be one you know 10 6 or 110 of these things you know it, it was you know it was, it was a race and they hoped there would be a lot of them but at that time uh you know ralph mulford you know he had no idea that what it was going to become and so I think that, that you're right. I think that had a lot to do with, with what ended up happening of the so-called controversy. And, and again, it it sells more books and it sells, you know, there's it, it's more of a talking point if there's a controversy. If it's what we know already happened, which is Ray Haroon won, it's not going to sell as many books, right?
3: There is. That is true. Uh, there is one area where Ralph Mulford, I'm not going to say won, but that statistically speaking is interesting about him after the fact. He passed away on October 23rd of 1973, and when Ralph Milford passed away, he was the last living member of the 1911 Indianapolis 500 field. Now we talked about the fact that Marmon in 1911 was credited with the win. They did not return in 1912 because, truthfully, in growing their brand, there was little to be gained. The same happened for National when they won in 1912. Joe Dawson won the race. National got a lot of attention. National opted uh, at that point to to kind of hold back a little bit. And so Carl Fisher decided it was time to go and further pursue European car manufacturers for the Indianapolis 500-mile race known as the International Sweepstakes. And it became that truly in 1913 because teams came over from Europe, including Peugeot. And their driver, Jules Gu, and Mike Thompson will forever be in my will because he has included Jules Gu in tonight's program, knowing full well That that is my all-time favorite 500 winner. Now, Mike, I'm going to put you on the spot with a trivia question. Feel free to decline if you don't know the answer off the top of your head. Do you know why Jules Goo is my all-time favorite Indianapolis 500 winner?
2: I don't know why. I think it's probably because of what we're going to talk about, though,
3: isn't it? That is the common myth appropriate for the evening. That the story that we're going to talk about with Jules Goo is the reason why he became my favorite driver. Actually, the reason Jules Goo was my favorite all-time 500 winner is because he was the first champion to put his title on the line the next year and return to attempt to defend it, which I have always thought was pretty cool. Now, Joe Dawson did come back in 1914, don't get me wrong, but he was driving for Marmon at that point because... Turned out that when he ran for National, he was a married man. National decided that if they were going to return, they didn't want a married man driving, so he jumped over to Marmon in 1914. But nonetheless, Jules Gu came in 1913 in his Peugeot, and people always say the legend is that Jules Gu drank seven bottles of champagne over the course of his 500-mile journey, that over the course of an average speed just over 75 miles an hour and at six hours and 35 minutes, Jules Gou was coming in and drinking the sparkling bubbly every time he came in for a pit stop. Here is Donald Davidson on the next of our myths. Well, that's
0: an exaggeration. I mean, would I say that it didn't happen? No. Something happened, but not nearly to that extent. And uh, th- there's also uh, plenty of um, information from the time that somebody can go and uh, look up, if, as uh, as I think Casey Stengel used to say. <laughs> but um, but most people just sort of prefer to prefer to uh, embellish the story. And and uh, so anyway, what what happened was this. Um, goo apparently made six stops and on at least four of the six apparently there was a bottle of champagne uh it was not a large bottle and i forget what the measurement now was but it was described as whatever the term was i think it was four fifths of one pint and he shared the bottle with the writing mechanic. Now, in, in those days and for many years thereafter, remember it. Was, and this was a very hot day, and it's bricks, no, no blacktop at all, so it's rough, and, uh, plus the fact that it was very, very hot. The driver and the writing mechanic would do much, if not all, of the work on a pit stop. And so, anyway, uh, goo whether this whether he regularly did this in uh, in long races or not i don't know but probably i mean i'm sure that he, because he was from a well-to-do family his fa- his family many of them were like engineers with Peugeot and upper level management and so on and so forth and so he makes the stop and uh, somebody hand, hands him the uh, the bottle which apparently he took a couple of swigs and shared with the riding mechanic uh, did they consume the entire bottle they may have but did they consume a, uh, Did did he personally consume an entire bottle on every stop? No, and the best uh, the best guess is that of the six stops, he may have had a bottle on at least four, and uh, that maybe some of them he may have consumed some, or it could have been used as mouthwash. I mean, it could have been a little more than than a you know
3: swill and 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 and, and spit. So, Jules Goo in 1913, as I had mentioned, was the first winner to come back the next year to run again. In addition to that, Jules Goo was the first international winner at the Indianapolis 500 mile race. And of course, again, truly making it an international sweepstakes. But the Speedway wanted to make sure that not everything about Jules Goo became a trend. You know, whatever effects it may have had on him,
0: uh, you know, he wasn't drunk. It, it probably, it, you know, helped uh, the uh, numb the senses against the pounding very much, but it, 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 you know he he won the race by a huge margin, and uh, then but w- w- anybody that would say, well, you know that's nonsense, it didn't happen. Well, yes, it did because um, in Victory Lane, he was asked for the quote, And uh, forgive me, my French is not good, but it was something like, sans sans le bon vin, je ne serai pas été état de faire la victoire, something like that. So uh, forgive me, uh, French students or French people, but it it was roughly translated, without the good wine, I couldn't have won the race. And uh, then there was a rule, AAA did have a rule that went into effect the following year that, in so many words, said that, uh, you know, it was not permissible to consume alcoholic beverages during a race. So, you know, did he drink some champagne? Yes, but not in the quantities that's been uh, been uh, perpetuated in, in uh, the myths.
3: When we come back, we'll flash forward in years just a bit, but there were still myths that took place at 16th and Georgetown. A further examination of those when we return to Beyond the Bricks now here's exactly where we stand right now. The leader, Johnny Parsons, is going into his 89th lap. He's still out in front. Jack McGrath is still in position number two. Uh, still in position number three is Maury Rose. Paul Russo has not yet lost position number four, and Bill Holland has moved up into position number five. Now friends, this is the latest up to the minute report from Indianapolis here. So I'm inviting you to join us for the next broadcast from Indianapolis Speedway.
2: The 500-mile racing classic is presented in honor of your doctor of motors, that expert mechanic who
3: keeps your car in tough condition. And this broadcast is sponsored by the makers and distributors of Perfect Circles, the most honored name in piston rings and the name for you to remember when you go to your uh, doctor of motors. Bill Slater speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. I was just about to say, that's Bill Slater on Mutual Broadcasting. That's the 1950 Indianapolis 500, Johnny Parsons. In a rain-shortened race that we covered the other day, Mike got the checkered flag. But once again now, it comes with a little bit of urban legend, right?
2: That's correct. This is one of those ones that just never has seemed to go away. There was a myth that Johnny Parsons' team, before the race, found out that the block was cracked and was going to fail during the race so they he and the team and johnny came up with the plan hey just go out there charge ring up as much lap prize money as you can before the thing fails but donald davidson tells the true story of what actually happened The legend is that Johnny Parsons knew he had a cracked block on race morning and decided to go out and lead as many laps as possible to get the lap prize money. And then miraculously, the skies opened up, and he found himself an Indianapolis 500 winner because of that. Because the rain was stopped short, and he was
0: saved. The cracked block held out, and he was saved by the rain. Baloney! <laughs> uh, I've got this from several people, none of whom are around now. But uh, uh, a, a fellow named Bill Sparks, he worked for Allison's, and he was on the crew. And uh, he said, you know, he said, he said it wasn't a crack. And he said we, um, he said on race morning, uh, we were in, we were in early, and then somebody said, look, there's some there's some moisture on top of the block, and so they took a rag, wiped it off. And then a few minutes later, then there was some moisture on the top again. And so... um uh, Harry Stevens was the chief mechanic, and he said, or Harry Stevens said, all right, don't tell anybody because word travels through Gasoline Alley. You know, this is the best rumor uh, place in, in the world, so if you, you know, don't tell anybody. So he said well, what we did, uh, we got a couple little blocks of wood and some rags. We wrapped the rags around the blocks of wood, and we put it on either side of the block. And he said we took a ha- somebody took a hammer and then peened it, gently peened it peened it because the theory was there's the porosity in the metal is allowing the moisture to come up through the through the top and so he said so we just peened it and then then we were okay so we went ahead and ran the race that way so to back up um you know was he trying to hide something no because frankie delroy who i came to know very very well was the chief mechanic on the car the following year. It was sold to, to Jim Robbins, and Mike Nazareth finished second and went the full 500 miles to finish second, and Frankie Delroy said it had the same block. He said that um, Jim Robbins, uh, you know, I he said, I took over as chief mechanic and said, well, you know, you want to do something about that? He said, well, you know, let's see if we can make it last, and, and it did. So uh, it just basically backed up what Bill Sparks had told me. Uh, that, that was the moisture on the top? Yes. Did Did they peen it? Yes. Was it a crack in the block? No. And you run into that still. Again, I'm repeating what I said, but it went 500 miles the next year. second. After that, I have no idea.
3: But uh, another one of those myths that won't go away. So because we did Jules Goo, who is my all-time favorite, I guess it stands to reason, Mike, that your all-time favorite also would be one who has a myth that hangs over him that's correct
2: there is the the classic myth that the wood brothers who are great great guys great folks of course but the the myth is of course that the wood brothers came to indianapolis and completely revolutionized the way pit stops were done and they they showed all the guys who didn't know what they were doing how it was done in nascar country and and that's how you know, IndyCar teams learned how to do pit stops was because of the Wood Brothers. That's the
3: myth. So the Wood Brothers and Jim Clark, 1965, right, Mike? That's what we're about to hear. That's correct. Okay, so 1965, Jim Clark was the winner of the Indianapolis 500, the 49th Indy 500, as a matter of fact, and his Lotus powered by Ford, and again, came over with the Wood Brothers, and man, they had lightning quick stops, and lo and behold, look out, Katie bar the door, Donald Davidson, what say you?
0: There was some outlandish statement made about the fact that that, um, uh, th- th- that their four stops combined were quicker than any single stop made by any of the others. That's what it was. It's, I think something like that, which is just total baloney. And uh, anyway, so the, the um, Jim Clark stopped twice. And, 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 I'll say, and I'll say this several times, I'll take nothing away from the Wood Brothers because they would find, find people and went about things in a very methodical way. But uh, Clark stopped twice, and the first stop was 21 seconds, and the second stop was 25 seconds. It was fuel only. They never changed a wheel in, in fact, uh, they were up here in '66, and which is a, another thing. But anyway, the the, the thing is that on um, uh, the, they never changed a wheel on either of the two cars in the one race that they they uh, went the distance with. And this, I believe, was the first year for fuel f- for for gravity flow rather than uh, if if it if it could have been force fed in '64, and I'm. Not technically proficient enough to know. But anyway, were those the fastest pitch stops ever? No. As it turns out, those two stops, the 21 seconds and the 25 seconds, were faster than any other stop that anybody did that year, but not by a chunk, because there were several people that did stops that were in the 20s, and sometimes they, they were a little bit more to make sure that they had the uh, the, the full amount in, or, and, and then some of them would would have a, a a first stop that might be 30 seconds or 32 seconds or something like that, and then the second one would be like maybe 21, 22, because they didn't need the full load. But anyway, uh, the, the, the stops in the previous few years had been faster than that. And in 1962, Roger Ward won the race with three stops, A.J. Watson pit crew, and the stops were 19 seconds, Not making this up. 19 seconds, 22 seconds, and 19 seconds for the three stops, which involve not only fuel, but wheel changes as
3: well. (laughs) Donald Davidson on the 1965 race. Mike, the reality is it probably comes with each and every year. There have always been other controversies that have taken place, including those that you and I have witnessed. Certainly we saw, you know, I don't know that Scott Goodyear... And I love Scott Goodyear, and certainly he has been a great sport about it. But, uh, you know, the controversy of the 1995 when he passed the pace car uh, just before the green flag came out on the final restart and Jacques Villeneuve went on to get the win. Scott Goodyear was black flagged. 2002, we have mentioned, obviously ended in controversy. 1981, you know, we've talked about that extensively. So, I hate to say it's part of the charm of the speedway but it certainly Mark adds to the or excuse me Mike it adds to the allure of the speedway.
2: Yeah, it's it's definitely part of the uh, allure and and it's definitely part of the fabric of the speedway and and it's and it's great to have someone like Donald be able to you know knock down the myths and say, yep, no. I mean, I love when Donald says in an interview when you get baloney out of him because you know he's that's what he he's so good at. He's he's so good at just knocking that stuff down, and saying no, that didn't happen, and here's what really happened. You know, so uh, you know, I really enjoyed doing those th- those uh sound bites with Donald that day.
3: We have talked about Alancer Senior on this program. I have a feeling that this month we will also talk about Alancer Junior among others. But tomorrow night, I think we're going to have some fun with it. We talk so much about the names that are household within the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that I think tomorrow night, we're going to talk about one that you might not be as familiar with. You'll know the name, but wait till you hear the story. That's tomorrow night. Sound good, Mike? Tomorrow night, 8 o'clock? Sounds good to me. All right. Have a good night, everybody. It's Beyond the Bricks.